Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Greetings, music nerds, and welcome to Season 5 of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'd just like to thank everyone for tuning in and being an encouraging audience over the last few years, and I'm sure you will enjoy this season as well. We'll take some deep musical dives together in the coming months, and I'm looking forward to sharing some of these conversations I've been having with some incredible musicians and music producers with you. We have a couple of continuing sponsors that help to bring you each episode this season. The first is Union Tube and Transistor, making incredible guitar effect pedals out of Vancouver, BC. My old pal Chris Young at Union has been laying stuff on me for years, starting with his prototype buzz bomb pedal about 15 years ago. Since then, he's become a leading light in boutique pedal manufacturers with an extensive line of pedals like the Moore pedal, the Lab Compressor, and the Sone Bender that are constants in my recording world. Check out their line of pedals at uniontone.com. And the second sponsor for the season is Black Mountain Thumbpicks. I've been using these myself for several months, and I think they're great. Cole McBride, the owner, is trying to make everybody happy and now has medium gauge, heavy gauge, jazz-tipped, left-handed, and regular and extra tight spring tensions available. Check them out at blackmountainpicks.com. So even though I've been doing this podcast for about five years, my heart just isn't into hounding companies for advertising dollars. So as always, this show mostly relies on listener support to keep going. And thanks to everyone that has done that in the past. It's a huge help to know that there's people out there willing to kick in to make it all possible. So if you're interested in doing so, there's a few simple ways to help out. First of all, please just tell your music nerd pals about this show. Word of mouth is probably the best way to get the show heard more. If you're in a position to kick in a bit financially, you can make a one-time donation or join in on my Patreon account, which is a monthly donation billed directly to your credit card at any amount of your choice. You'll also get access through Patreon to some private videos and other stuff as I make it available. And the third way that you can help out is to buy a t-shirt or other swag as it comes available. You can have a look at those or make a donation or join the Patreon all at the new website, which is www.makersandshakerspodcast.com. And please don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get them from. And while you're at it, folks, don't forget to have a listen to our offshoot show called One Life featuring Jim Burns. It's a fun concept podcast involving live improvised music and off-the-cuff storytelling. I think you might dig it. And finally, please follow the show on social media. I have links to Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook all on the website as well as a YouTube link. And that YouTube channel actually is going to get a bit more action this year. In the past, I've just put up links to some live performances, but I will be starting a video series this year about music and recording that I think you might dig. So please subscribe to my YouTube channel as well. 
Links are all at the top of the page at www.makersandshakerspodcast.com and at my personal website, which is stevedawson.ca. So that's about it for the biz side of things. Let's get going. On to this week's show. Hey there, folks. Welcome to the show. Welcome back. This is episode number 107 with my guest, Allison Russell. Now, for those of you who listened to the show through the pandemic last year, you'll remember that I had Allison on the show about a year ago, right about now. Um, that was right after George Floyd had been killed, and we talked about some of that and some of the struggles that she dealt with in her life in the music biz, but we really didn't get into the music side of what she did. And I figured we would leave that for a separate episode. And the time has come. That time, folks, is right now, today. Uh, before we get going, I would just like to, to thank some of the recent financial supporters of the show. We couldn't do it without you. So thanks to Harold Harris, Greg Herman, and oh, my buddy Daryl Havers. And he always kicks in a little bit when I interview a cool keyboard player. And I'm sure that's what happened here. We had Bill Payne on last month. So thanks again to those people and to all the supporters through Patreon and other forums. Sold a bunch of shirts recently too, so thanks for scooping up some of those. All right, so I spent the better part of the last three years out on the road um, with Allison, touring with her and her husband JT in the band Birds of Chicago. We played all over the world and at all kinds of shows and festivals and some house concerts and all kinds of things. But we actually we actually go back way further than that as well. I've known Ali for over 20 years at this point. We used to cross paths in Vancouver way back in the day when we both lived there. We didn't do a lot musically together back then, but I knew she was a great singer and totally unique. And we'd do the odd festival workshop together. And there's a few gigs that um, I did where I was sort of in charge of putting together groups of musicians and I'd always bring her in for stuff like that. So we do go way back, but for the most part, since she started playing music, she's been on the road and there are honestly very few people I can think of that have worked harder at it than she has. Her band Poe Girl, which was started when we were both living in Vancouver, used to do these insane tours where they'd be, they'd be gone basically the entire year doing like 300 gigs a year. And from what I remember, they would play anywhere. They'd play like dive bars and house concerts and clubs and festivals anywhere, basically just to stay out there. And that's what they did. That band uh, eventually ran its course and was put on hiatus. And Allie joined up with JT, who is now her husband, and started the Birds of Chicago in about 2011 or 2012. I'm not sure the exact timeline, but it's in there somewhere. And they made a bunch of cool records and they kept touring constantly. They had a daughter, Ida. Um, I guess that was seven years ago. I think she's seven. And about four weeks after she was born, they went back at it and they were touring again nonstop. So I came into the picture a few years back when I was looking to get into some touring and they needed a guitar player and it just sort of worked out. So we made an acoustic album around that time called American Flowers for Birds of Chicago. And I just started more or less playing all these gigs that they had, which was quite a lot. And we played all over the States and Canada and Europe and the UK and Ireland and just kept at it over the last three years. And uh, that's what I was doing when the pandemic hit. We were out opening some shows for the Wood Brothers and in the middle of that tour, we all went home. And you know how that played out, everybody. I don't need to get into that. 
Anyway, um, somewhere in there, Allie and JT wrote all the material that would become Allie's first solo, solo album, Outside Child, and that was just released last week. And it really is an incredible work of art. Um, it features her vocals spectacularly, and it has some beautiful live interplay between her and the band that was assembled at the time. And it sort of chronicles her incredibly moving and personal story in a way that I have not really heard before. And I would encourage you all to go and check out the new album, Outside Child. So this is going to be a big year for her. You can already see big things happening, big changes in her life. Um, this week, I got to play with her on Jimmy Kimmel, which was a blast. And she had her solo debut on the Grand Ole Opry, which I saw and was incredible to see. And I'm sure she's going to have an insanely busy rest of the year. And hopefully you will get a chance to see her in action somewhere out there if things keep improving on the old live music front, which it seems to me like they are. So please keep up to date with her and all her upcoming dates at alisonrussellmusic.com. And you can pick up the vinyl or stream the new album Outside Child wherever you get your music from. All right, now let's get down to it. This is my conversation with my old pal. Allison Russell. Did you get Ida all sorted out? Yes. She and dad's making her, JT's making her breakfast now. And why don't you tell me a little bit about as far as the new record goes? I mean, both in a small sense of like, it's been a while since you actually made the record to putting it out now. And that process I know has been um, also complicated by the last year with COVID and everything. And, but then also just like the bigger picture of how this really is your first solo album and people may think of you as a new artist, but like to me, you've been <laughs> slogging it out harder than anyone I know for a long ass time. I know. And so um, funny. Yeah. people people may not know that, and we should talk about that. But maybe you could just talk a bit about you know what the process has meant to you as far as putting the record out, both in the short term over the last you know year and a half since you actually made the record and also just like leading up to this point in your life where you've just been at it so hard for so long. Yeah. Well, the, the short term is that I, I, we kind of had this, I had this window in 2019 between a native daughters tour and a birds of Chicago tour that you were yeah. on with us, of course. Um, because for those of you who don't know, Steve Dawson also uh, moonlights with birds of Chicago, as well as being a brilliant, solo artist, producer, record label, owner, and podcaster, and many other things too, I'm sure. But he also has been playing with my, um, the band that I have with my partner, JT Nero, Birds of Chicago, for the last several years. So I had this window between tours with the two projects that, I've, that I'm a part of, Our Native Daughters, which is a project um, a band with Rhiannon Giddens, Amethyst Kia and Layla McCalla and I, and then Birds of Chicago. And I had this little window between the two. It was right around Americana Fest, right after Americana Fest in 2019 here in Nashville, uh, where I live now. And um, we just, you know, I was had been very fortunate to get a, a Canada Council grant for the writing of this project oh, and yeah. and then I had just found out that I was awarded a, a recording grant and so suddenly I had the funds and I had this four-day window and the sound emporium happened to be free for those four days 
and our our friend Dan Nobler was was able to you know block that time off as well who who produced Outside Child which is the new record the debut solo record and um and everyone was in town because of Americana Fest and it was just that little those little hangover few days sort of the early October after that and or actually late September I think um and so we went in and just recorded these songs in four days and I honestly when we started the process I was so much in denial about the fact that I was making a solo record and I was like oh maybe we'll just record these maybe we could use some of this for a birds recording <laughs> maybe we could you know I was sort of but it became clear as we got into the songs that this was a whole body of work and um and it was a journey and a and a solo a personal very personal journey i started to wrap my head around the fact that i would indeed need to release this as a solo record at some point but at that point in 2019 we were so busy with birds and with native daughters for that matter that i just it didn't you know i sort of thought well i'll record it and then we'll figure out what to do with it later you know how to find some sort of team to help me like how does one even launch yeah. a solo career you know i was that that to me felt very uh foreign and overwhelming and because as you have pointed out for my entire career which began when i was around 17 years old and moved from montreal quebec to vancouver bc and sort of started to inch the closet door open that i was a musician and a writer um you know i've been very much drawn to ensemble work that's been my you know right. that's i've always always been part of a group that is what excites me about music the communion you know on stage the communion obviously with the pe- the folks that come to listen but the most exciting thing to me is is the the conversation on stage and you know and and not just on stage just in general creating music with other wonderful artists is really fulfilling to me and that's you know it's almost i'm not a religious person i don't have a you know a a dedicated spiritual practice i don't attend any sort of religious institution but for me like making music with my friends is sort of as yeah. close to communion and church you know as it gets so <laughs> i love it and of course this solo record is still that like you play on it Jamie Dick plays on it. Drew Lindsay plays on it. Chris Fromero plays on it. JT co-wrote a lot of it with me and plays on it as well and sings yeah. on the last song with me. Um you know we have we have a proper duet there at the end a little birds moment and um yeah you know just and all of all of these beautiful women came and sang and uplifted me in this process yola sings on it ruth moody sings on it erin ray sings on it mccrary sisters sing on it yeah it's so oh gosh it's gorgeous ruth and erin that was so that was the first time they ever sang together was on my record which i'm so uh, you know what's what's on together they sing on a few they sing on high brazil they sing oh, on persephone okay. and they sing on i think they sing on poison arrow as well oh they're just angelic together their voices were like just made to be together I, like it was really like all of us got like the kind of like hair on the back of our necks like oh this is so beautiful you know spine tingling right 
you know, and of course, Yola just came and slayed it on, she sings on the runner and, and the Prairie sisters are just so amazing. And they sing on all of the women and fourth day prayer just elevated, you know, so I was, this is a solo record in name, but it was absolutely still very much a community, you know, for to, to, to realize it, you know, and all of, all of the brilliant artists that grace the record, including you, Steve, I would never dream of telling anyone what to play. You know, it's present the songs and people just um, responded so beautifully. And it was a conversation. It felt like because we did the, the main uh, tracks live essentially together at the sound emporium. I was kind of in that big um, room with the glass doors with the glass doors open and the band were all kind of in a semicircle in studio a at, at the sound emporium, which just has so much, you know, history in the walls, cowboy Jack Clement's old place and everybody and their dog and their grandma has sung there and played there. And you just feel that just that good, that good mojo in the walls you know, the thing that we do, like that you've done with us on Birds Records, like where basically every song we played three times, you know, and right. it was usually the second take that we, <laughs> yeah. that we all agreed on, you know, and yeah. Um, yeah, just really a magical experience. And it was really emotional for, for me because, and for all of us, really, like we were, there were moments of, you know, we're crying and laughing you know, Steve, you were up in, in Vancouver making a record, I think, when we did the bed tracks because Steve had to come, you know, he overdubbed his part after his parts, I should say, and um, plays beautiful pedal steel on a couple of songs. And um, yeah, but it was it was just a really emotional, beautiful, cathartic kind of enchanted experience for me for sure and how did it actually like transform for, so when I remember this like we were on tour and then I yeah like I was going up to make a record in Vancouver and right. right before I left you guys were sort of like well I think we're making a Birds of Chicago record like that was the last thing that I had heard and then I know when I came and back then, and then we- I remember like you guys picked me up to go somewhere else on tour and you're like well I think it's actually a solo record now. So like, was there, was it literally like that? Because I was in where, a lot of denials about that I was making yeah. a solo. I had so much, so many sort of internal blocks of the psyche to overcome that, you know, frankly, are to do with the kind of childhood that I had, that I delve into on this record of the, that kind of, you know, I, my, as you know, my, but folks listening may not know, you know, I, had a very severely abusive childhood and there are there's fallout from that and for me putting my own name forward uh felt terrifying you know and so it just took me a long time to to wrap my head around that and and feel ready to tell my own story sing my own story in my own name how was that process for you as a writer going through those experiences and like being able to put them into words and sing them and manage that? It was actually really healing. I mean, harrowing, yeah. obviously, as well, and difficult and, and painful. And I kind of feel like I'm actually just at the beginning of what it's really going to be like because, you know, the album is just newly in the world. And, um, you know, there's going to be layers of this process as I, 
you know, as, as, as I share this story in a broader way and mm -hmm. start actually performing these songs for people, because I haven't played the, these were like brand new yeah. baby songs when, when we recorded them. And I wrote, you know, I wrote a bunch on the native daughters tour that I did in the summer of 2019. Like that was in some ways that project with our native daughters was the genesis of really thinking about maybe I do need to make a solo record that I had a lot more okay. that I needed to stay in process. Um, and on that tour, you know, we did this, this wild tour with our native daughters where we took all of our children <laughs> on, a, on a tour, two tour buses with a film crew from Smithsonian <laughs> that they were turning it into a documentary. And, describe those, you know, describe those buses for me. Cause I remember you telling me about that. And were it was just like derelict times a thousand like they were they were not they were good from far and far from good and like kind of terrifying but we it was that yeah. they, were, they were like well there's no other buses at this point all the other buses are rented out to other bands it's these buses or it's no buses <laughs> so we we made it work but it was terrifying it was so every, everyone's kids. at one point and the other kids got trapped in the kid bus because it had electrics that were failing and the door the door oh to the God. cabins shut and so we the grown-ups were on one side and the kids were on the other and it was you know ida was claustrophobic to begin with so that was not that was not the most joyous day and the the driver of the kid bus was not um how do we play a bit of a misanthrope like didn't like people much let alone children and so luckily the the leslie who was driving the the uh, you know the adult bus she came and rescued the kids and got yeah. <laughs> got our kids out and it was that was at chautauqua i'll never forget it we, it was like a very i mean it felt like it was five hours it was probably only 45 minutes to an hour all told that they were trapped but it was you know <laughs> i lost years we all lost yeah. years <laughs> of our lives it was totally traumatic but it was also you know the tour itself was beautiful we had these wonderful sold out shows and it culminated at the newport folk festival and yeah you know we're just play it had the most kind of transcendent experience and this packed tent at the quad stage and you know six standing ovations and just this you know surreal experience of this iconic festival it was my first time at newport a magical experience and we got to do the finale we got to sing with backup mavis staples and hosier on the main stage singing eyes on the prize you know with the preservation hall jazz band popping up and playing wow. and Jason Isbell appearing out of nowhere and shredding a guitar solo. It was like, what is happening right now? Phil Cook, our dear friend Phil Cook, who was kind of orchestrating the jam and playing, you know, just playing gorgeous harmonica solos. And it was just awesome, magical. You know, it was a magical experience and also absolutely insane you know, to, be on, to be doing this really intensive tour and with press jackets at every stop and, yeah. and the film crew and doing interviews for, for the documentary. And the kids just, we were so lucky though, because Ida's very first teacher that she ever had here in nashville ms molly who ms. taught molly, i remember ms molly ms molly yes who taught yeah. at linden waldorf here in nashville she came i i i am in debt to her forever we all are everybody all of the moms and our native daughters 
she came on the road and she turned our gaggle of six kids into like a little Waldorf classroom and took them on these fabulous adventures while we were working and, you know, put up being put up with being on the bus and Layla's twins were really young at the time. So she, her oh daughter Delilah is just a bit younger than Ida. Then she had the twins who were, I think, maybe 15 months old at the time when we did this tour. Uh, and Zion's aid. So we were all just taking turns with them at night. Because of course, you know, of course, it's like this unfamiliar situation. And you know, and then Rhiannon's two her who were older, Aoife was 10 when we did the tour and Queen's a year older than Ida. But it was just it was totally wild and wacky, but, you know, great um, memories and experience. And I started writing a lot of the songs for Outside Child, just cramped into a bunk with Ida, scribbling them at night, you know, and I couldn't sleep because I had all this stuff kind of yeah, so coming out. So tell me a, a bit about your writing process, because like you you're on the road so much or you were on the road, like leading up to the recording of the record. And I know that for a fact, because I saw you. I know you were with me. And, um, <laughs> I mean, I remember that you were you were scrawling songs on airplanes and things like that. Was yeah. that a new experience for you? Like not everyone can do that. I mean, I you know, when I write music, I certainly don't even attempt it anymore. Like when I'm on tour, because I just can't wrap my head around the process, really. No. But what's it what's it like for you? And was that like a new approach to writing? You know, I think in the Pogirl days, we we just toured so intensively that I had to learn to write on the road because we okay. just. So my first baby band, for those of you listening who don't know, it was a band called Pogirl that formed in Vancouver, British Columbia, around two thousand three. Um, the the original genesis was. Trish Klein from the Bigitanias and and me. And then Ana Teixeira joined, Yona Davies joined. Uh, Shelly Okepnak was part of it for a little while. John Ram became our drummer for quite a few years. And it went through all these different permutations. And the the only the last one standing of that band are Ana Teixeira and I um, on an indefinite hiatus. But we used to tour like 300 days of the year we yeah. were just you guys were animals absolutely you know yes sort of feral <laughs> we just never stopped we just kept kept touring and you know we were trapped on a bit of a of a subsistence touring hamster wheel really yeah. um but i did learn how to write wherever i was and that was helpful and actually jt you know i jt and i um became friends around 2003 right when Pogo started and we started dating JT's my JT Nero's my partner um and the you know in all things life and child making and rearing and co-writing and all the all of the good stuff rocking out um rocking out yes rocking out with birds and um just yeah he he has an a really really strong almost sort of like Tin Pan Alley Brill Building writing ethic where he just writes every day. And I remember being so struck by that when I met him and it was very inspiring to me because he was very much like, you know, it's, you cannot be precious and wait for this, you know, bolt of genius inspiration to strike. You have to just write every day and you have to write a bunch of stuff that you're never going to share because it's not, necessarily worth sharing but you are you are still exercising the muscles that are needed to yeah. then 
render the genius bolt from the blue when it arrives, you know, to be able to transmit something that feels compelling, then you are, then those muscles are strong and you're ready to do it. And so I've been very inspired by his writing work ethic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so in the Poe Girl days, I wrote a ton. I wrote all the time, even in early Birds of Chicago days. But we got, we started Birds of Chicago around uh, 2012, end of 2012, beginning of 2013. We put out the first sort of eponymous release. And th- not that long after, I got knocked up with Ida. Um, you know, I, we toured till I was 40 weeks pregnant. We got married when I was about five months pregnant. Uh, we just kept touring. And I, after I was born, we hit the road again, not, not even four weeks after her birth. And so I was a first time mom, you know, nursing and touring and playing music. And I had writer's block for almost four years. I I just didn't, I just stopped writing. And uh, other than, you know, little lullabies for Ida and things like that, little bits of children's songs, basically. And I just really, it was quite terrifying, actually. I felt like maybe I'm not a writer anymore. Maybe I'm, you know, just a song interpreter. And I was lucky in that, you know, JT had the opposite reaction to becoming a parent. He just had this creative explosion. He was writing just at a volume and speed I couldn't believe and, and beautiful, you know, he's one of my favorite writers in the world, as you know, one of my favorite poets as well as songwriters. And um, he just had this creative explosion. And so I was happy and he was really doing this kind of a, 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 a new thing where he started to really channel songs for me, you know, where he was right. He was like tapping deep into his inner, inner feminine and goddess and chat, you know, writing these incredible songs like Kinderspell or, you know, real med- songs that, that were vehicles for me to sing. Was he doing that intentionally, like with the band and you in mind? You know, I don't know that it was, um, I mean, it became, it became clear that that's what was happening. I think he just started having the, the strange experience of having these songs come knocking. They were like, this is not my song to sing. This is, right. you know, Ali's song to sing. And so I just, you know, I had a period of about four years there where I was just being mom and trying to keep it together and, and sing and play and do our job. Cause we were raising Ida on the road and a, small van you know this was not it was not bus touring it was not luxury touring you know and we were going hard we were going I mean birds of Chicago was never as uh sort of wild as Pogrel with the constant constant tour but we were we were doing easily 200 days a year on the road yeah yeah uh, for for the first four years of I you know almost four years of Ida's life and then you know as as we were I became aware during that time that I needed maybe a shift. You know, I was feeling very blocked. Obviously I wasn't writing and I was starting to feel sort of some um, just less hope about was this really a sustainable path, what we were doing, the way that we were approaching our work as artists, was this sustainable? And, you know, and then the native daughters thing came up. So that was 
that was what broke open the writing floodgates actually, because when Rhiannon invited me to be part of that project, the initial idea was sort of reclaiming um, songs from the songs of black writers that were sort of lost to the discomfort around the racism of minstrelsy in America. But there's this body of work that are also compositions of black artists that are beautiful works that are surrounded by this horrible derogatory miasma, you know, that, so she was wanting to reclaim those songs. And that was initially what she thought the Native Daughters Project, the Songs of Our Native Daughters Project would be. But what happened, yeah, and that, and that we might, you know, rewrite parts of it or we might reinterpret it. But what ended up happening were just a bunch of original songs and a bunch of co-writing. And it was very much, this is it. We have 10, we, we did that record in 10 days uh, down in Bow Bridge, Louisiana, and Smithsonian sent a camera crew again to sort of capture the the process. And we were, you know, it was like hit the ground running where I got there the the first evening. We Amethyst Bannon and I wrote Moon Meets Sun in the first hour that we were all hanging out together and we recorded it the next day. And it went on like that, where I was co-writing songs with Amethyst. I was co-writing songs with Layla McCalla. And then I just started writing a bunch of songs, some of which were recorded on the Native Daughters record. And some of which, you know, didn't, I, it was like this floodgate opening of writing again, Yeah, like something had shifted. And it was also my first time away from Ida, um, where maybe I just had a chance to process and I was really, really missing her as well. And that, became a part of the of the kind of writing catharsis and it just kind of exploded from there and so that's where the seed was planted of I guess I have there's a lot more that I need to to transmit here and get out and and share and it was really interesting because Sheba that song in particular kind of broke me wide open where I understood for the first time really clearly in the front of my mind that my experience was directly connected to what's happened, what had happened to my ancestors ancestors within the Black diaspora and how closely my childhood experience mirrored some of what my ancestors experienced. And that was just sort of, I don't know how to describe what that felt like, (laughs) but I, it started opening me up to realizing that I needed to write about my own history and sort of excavate it and reclaim it and process it and, and put it to rest because, and, and I felt this urgency to do that because of Ida, because of becoming a mother oh. um, and feeling, feeling a responsibility to break these cycles of bigotry and violence and abuse in whatever ways that I can. And part of that for me is, is speaking and singing my own, story in history, you know, in hopefully in an empowered way and from a place that is, that is the past, you know, that is, I left that abusive situation when I was 15, you know, and so I've had a long time to, to process what happened. And I'm now surrounded by the most, you know, loving, wonderful, chosen family that I could imagine, you know, to, to feel safe and secure, to tell this story now and and kind of delve into it and reconcile. It's an interesting path how Native Daughters kind of uh, opened the floodgates as far as like your 
history and your ancestors and your connection with that, and then how that sort of transformed into writing these like incredibly personal songs for you that deal with your trauma as a as a child and your growing up. Was there a time where that shifted, where you suddenly, where you're drawing from ancestral stories and experiences, and then suddenly all this other stuff about your childhood starts pouring out? Um, did that just come naturally, or were you shifting in your head where you were heading writing-wise? I mean, it was just so much the same, yeah. you know, as I was delving. So I met right before the the Native Daughters recordings, which happened actually in January of 2018. The record came out uh, February of 2019, but we did the recording in January of 2018. And right around that time, you know, I have I met my biological paternal family as an adult, and I was starting to really get to know them. My the, my biological father, Michael George from Grenada. Uh, a large family, you know, descended of the diaspora that were brought in chains to work the sugarcane fields there. So, you know, it was meeting my Black family for the first time. I mean, for those of you listening who don't know, I was raised in essentially a white supremacist family with my biological Scottish Canadian mother and, a you know, an expat uh, American man from from a sundown town in Indiana who um, adopted me and, you know, abused me for a decade, severely abused me for a decade and continues to abuse my mother, which is one of the heart, most heartbreaking things yeah. in my life that I can't, can't change. Is she st- she's still and, in Montreal? Uh, yeah. Well, actually they moved from Montreal to St. Catharines. Oh, right. They're in Ontario. Right. Okay. All yeah. Right. They're in Ontario. I'm not sure what exactly. Yeah. That's a mystery. Do you, do you talk to your mother, your biological mother frequently or what's, what's that relationship like? You know, it, it's, it's, it, it is volatile is what I would say. I, I talk to her as much as I can. It's really difficult. She has a very severe schizophrenia and um, goes on and off of her medication. And that is just really hard and traumatic for her and for, you know, anyone close to her as well, because when she is abusing the medication, she can get, you know, very, very verbally and and physically abusive. And, and so we have struggled this pandemic. I mean, this is one of the, one of the, very intense collateral damage of the, there's not just, you know, the COVID harm, which is vast and uh, sort of hard to even wrap your mind and heart around just the loss, the magnitude of the loss. But then there are the, the collateral damage of it, the people that, that, you know, don't die from COVID, but they, they die from despair. You know, there are people dying from despair right now. And that is, something I really worry about with my mother, people that are trapped in situations of domestic violence, all of that is exacerbated in this time. You know, she hasn't had the same contact with her, you know, the sort of daily contact she used to have with her mental health care team. Right. It's just all been, you know, it's just, it's severe what's happening uh, to, to families that are at risk right now. And, um, and my mom is no exception. It's been really tough. I've, I've kind of gone up and down with communication with her throughout the pandemic. She just got, it, it got to the point where she was calling sort of 
over and over again, all hours of the night to sort of scream abuse at me because she wasn't taking her medication. I mean, it just, it got, it got really severe. And so I had to put up a boundary just because I need to be present for my family here too now. And I can't, it doesn't help her for me to just listen to her abuse, you know, when she's in a, when she's in an altered state, when she's in a, a state of psychosis, yeah. it doesn't help her. And so I've, you know, tried to connect her more with her healthcare team and with resources. At one point, she actually went to a shelter and for three days. And I was really hopeful that she was maybe actually going to leave him and and find a healthier situation and then she went back and that's sort of the you know so it, this has been long, this is the this has been years yeah. years yeah they've been together now a long time it's a codependent abusive relationship and it is something that i can't control yeah. and i can't you know I, I you know i love her so much and it's heartbreaking you know and i when she has times of lucidity, then it's, we have as much contact as we can. You know, I just met her a handful of times. We always meet, you know, at a park or somewhere public, because of course I'm not going to go anywhere near him ever again, nor let him be anywhere near my child. So um, we always, you know, it has to, it's really heartbreaking. It's, it's distant and it's few and far between. And now of course it's not happening because of COVID. So um, yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's a heartbreaking situation, and a lot of people are trapped in that situation. Yeah, I know. Another thing that really comes through on the on the record that's still a personal thing, but like on a different level, I guess, is kind of a sense of place that ha- that comes out in the songs. There's a lot of ties to Montreal. There's some ties to Vancouver. Obviously, the Montreal thing is like very pronounced because there's some. There's not a lot of French on the record, but French is a big part of your upbringing, I guess. And how much of Montreal do you think comes through in the in the in these new songs? Yeah, there's like literally like you talk about certain places, both in Vancouver and Montreal. But um, you know, was that was that an important part of your childhood growing up? The connection to Montreal, very much. And I think you know, I've I've come to understand and appreciate even more as an adult sort of in in self-imposed exile how important montreal was to my survival frankly i don't know that i would have survived my childhood in a different city you know that didn't have the 24-hour um somewhat safe places to be you know and the arts community that thrived there that just helped pull me through um you know, some really severe times of my childhood. And I just, so part, you're right. You're, that is very, astute. I mean, definitely a lot of this record is a love song in some ways to Montreal, you know, and Vancouver where I had my real awakening as a, as an artist, as a writer, as a musician and found a community that accepted me as I was, you right. know, yeah. um, and valued me, you know, that was new. <laughs> that was a new thing in my life. Had you started performing at all when you lived in Montreal or was that like you left there when you were like 15 or 16? I was actually 17 when I left. So I left home at 15, but I stayed in Montreal for a couple of years and, you know, sort of unhoused for a time and kind of couch surfing with different friends and, and then I moved in with three women from my high school. I went to this 
alternative high school called Moving in New Directions that was across the street from McGill University. It was one hallway, basically, of a, a larger fine arts high school called FACE. That's kind of like, like a fame kind of a high school. Okay. The mind was moving in new directions. And it was like a tiny little, there was, you know, 150 kids in the whole school. I think our graduating class was maybe 30 kids. Uh, so it was tiny, but it was, that was a life-changing um, and very much life-bettering event for me to find that. Did, did you have somebody that sort of took over your parenting role or were you just kind of parentless? I was parentless. Wow. It's actually amazing that you finished school. It's miraculous. And it's because of Montreal. This is really? what I, I mean, truly. And, and the sort of the ties that I had, like my grandma Isabel taught at McGill University for I think almost 20 years. And she, right when I left home, it coincided with when her Alzheimer's got to a point where she wasn't really recognizing, you know, her family anymore. And she is someone who I may have run to had the, had Alzheimer's not happened. She's your grandmother on your, on your paternal. My mom's side. Oh, on your mom's side. No, my, my mom's side, my mom's mom. Yeah. So I didn't, at this point, I had not met my biological, uh, family, my biological paternal family. I, I grew up, I, I had a kind of, I grew up, my mom was a baby, you know, when she had me, she was 17 oh, wow. when she got pregnant, 18 when she, she was a child and they were kids. You know, my biological father was still living in Grenada at the time, but had come to a couple of years of school in Montreal. He, he had older sisters that, that had emigrated to Montreal and you know, they were kids at a high school fling and wow. she got pregnant. He was back in Grenada by the time she realized she was pregnant. And she was just this sheltered girl who grew up in Saskatchewan primarily. The family moved, you know, to Montreal when my grandma got the fellowship at McGill. So my mom's mom. And it was, you know, a huge culture shock for these kids that had grown up in monochrome you know, Saskatchewan <laughs> to yeah. go to this inner city high school where they were the vision, you know, the visible minorities. And it was just huge culture shock, I think. And their parents were going through a divorce. You know, my grandfather was having affairs and my grandmother was getting her PhD and very focused on her career. And they had five wow. kids, you know, they had five teenagers that they just left to their own devices, you know, and it was a disaster, obviously, and very traumatic for all of them, you know, and my mom was just not diagnosed. Her parents were in denial about her mental health issues that they were just not, they were in total denial of it. And, and, you know, that was shameful. There's nothing wrong with it. You know, the stigma around mental health was so severe and, and, in my mom's family and uh and it's generational my grandma's mom was almost certainly schizophrenic in there in those days they called it being a bit fey being a bit touched really? and you hear these stories oh she had psychosis too yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know so and but such shame around it you know they're sort of from a a very sort of doer you know stiff upper lip a Scottish Presbyterian family and you just wow. didn't talk about any, anything. You didn't talk about anything. And so they were in denial and my mom gets pregnant. They, they are having their divorce. They're selling the house. They tell her 
if you don't get rid of this baby, we disown you, basically. And so she went to a home for unwed mothers in Quebec, you know. That's a real thing? 1979. Yes. And it was like, it was like the fallen women, right? It was Mm -hmm. the way Quebec, Catholic Quebec in 1979 was not forgiving of uh mothers having babies out of wedlock, let alone white mothers having black babies out of wedlock. You know, the prejudice was real and um, they're on, on so many levels. And so she just got, she was just, you know, failed by her family, failed by the social services system in, in Quebec, you know, at that time Um, they didn't, they didn't recognize or diagnose that she had real mental health crisis happening at the same time, which I'm, I'm convinced was worsened by, you know, the hormonal upheaval of pregnancy and childbirth, not to mention just the emotional trauma that she was going through being abandoned, you know, by her family. And um, it's just tragic and horrible and, you know, left her completely open to this predator, my adoptive father, who, so I was taken away from her under child protective services because she was harming me because she was a child in a mental health crisis, probably with postpartum depression as well, with no support. And 18, 17 or 18 years old. Unbelievable. Years old. By the time I'm born, 18 years old. So she was shamed and, you know, lost her white privilege and had, uh, had me, I was taken away from her by child protective services. And I was in a really, unfortunate, you know, foster care situation for almost four years uh, before she, and, and during those four years, it was, it was an, an abusive home as well. Um, although there were certainly moments of brightness with, with some of the other foster kids. Um, she was sort of groomed and, and stalked and married by this very, very abusive man, you know, in that time. And she was left wide open to that because all along the way, there was just no support. Yeah, And so it's just a tragic, tragic thing. And at the same time, I just think about all of these layers of interconnected trauma, you know, he, here he is. So who is he? He is a man who grew up in a sundown town in Indiana, who was, you know, raised in a very white supremacist, uh, abusive community who was taught to view black people as less than human, uh, who was drafted into the army and brutalized there, was abused in his home, was a, a broken person, you know, and, and then brought that, that trauma, which is leftover trauma from the civil war. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Or, you know. So in all this trauma for you and, and upheaval and moving around and foster care and stuff, where did music enter your life? Well, you know, my mom, actually, my mom, that's, she's an incredible piano player. She's just an incredible, so gifted. She was classically trained, um, really, really gifted, but didn't, you know, it was very, she never really, she loved playing, but would freeze if it was in front of people kind of thing. Okay. Um, So I used to, and that was, you know, we had such a fraught relationship but the part that I remember so that my one of my first memories from before the foster home so I must have been one um was crawling under the piano while she played when she didn't know I was there and I would just curl up and listen to her play and I could you know feel her her heart and her love in that way was she a a singer as well or was she just she played the piano not a little bit, you know, she would sing like, it's time to get up. It's time to get up. It's time to get up in the morning. You know, she'd sing these silly little songs sometimes. Yeah, She is not a great singer, but she has a, you know, she can hold a tune and, yeah. but she, she doesn't consider herself much of a singer. I don't think, but she's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful pianist. So I can't imagine in Montreal, like before you came out to Vancouver that you, would have had very much opportunity to like get into a performing situation at all. Was Vancouver really where that started for you? Well, you know, I, I just started dipping my toe into those waters in, in Montreal before, uh, before I moved, I had a a drama teacher in the 10th grade who just was convinced that I was meant to be a thespian for the stage. And she actually brought me into this program called McGill Explorations Drama Camp. And we did like a sort of a musical version of Midsummer Night's Dream. And I played Oberon, the king of the fairies, (laughs) which was, it was just, but it was lovely. And and there was some singing and I loved that. And, um, and actually at the first high school I went to Royal West Academy, they had an amazing drama program there. And I, I was like in the chorus of a couple of musicals. I was a singing nun in The Sound of Music. <laughs> and I was a cockney wench in My Fair Lady. Wow. <laughs> both, like... both roles that need to be reprised. <laughs> of course, you know. <laughs> but it was, and I loved it. And so I did get a sense of that that feeling of you know the the fa- the the kind of sense of a family almost that you get when you're doing one of those right. big productions for a few months and doing rehearsals and being part of the show and being part of the so I loved that I definitely caught the bug mm-hmm. there and um, and then when I was moved when I left home and was kind of trying to just find places to be some of the there were like all 24-hour cafes one place in particular the Croissant Royale and there was this pub Hurley's Irish pub on Crescent Street in Montreal which is not which is a street I would avoid like it's kind of like the club like 
kind of meat market right. scene. But there was this little like Irish pub that, you know, where they've like imported the bar from Killarney or whatever, you know, and they're trying to like have it look just like Ireland. And my friend White Allison had a crush on a musician that played there. And so we would go, you know, on winter cold, bitter cold winter nights, we would go and order tea and we were underage, but they, in Montreal, they're very lax about, or they were in these, those days about if you were a, a female with breasts, they would let you in. <laughs> and you know, that, that's just the truth back then. And, and the Low drinking, the legal drinking is 18, you know, <laughs> so they were like, if you're, oh yeah, younger, come on in. <laughs> they never checked our ID. Um, I don't want to get them in trouble. They're good people, but uh, they, you know, they, we would go and, and nurse tea. We, we didn't even drink at the time, but, and she would, she had a crush on this musician and I, lo- I just, lo- they played a lot of Stan Rogers songs really? and I loved them. I think Char- the man she had a crush on was from the East Coast, but the fiddler was this incredible Jerry O'Neill from County Donegal, incredible fiddle player. And he would play the fiddle like he had these huge hands. He looked like a miner or something, and but he would play the fiddle like down in his forearm yeah. like that. And it was, I just I like that style. And I love his playing. He was such a soulful, soulful, soulful guy and player. Yeah. And you know, we went so often that I started to know all the words to these songs and one night the the singer that she had a crush on had you know something happening with his throat and I requested a song a Stan Rogers song called Made on the Shore and he was like I can't sing it and Jerry the fiddler was like you sing it come really? come up here <laughs> you sing it and I was like oh. and I got a stage and I cried because I was so like yeah. I, I can't sing in front of people and then he's like well it can't get any worse now so you might as well sing <laughs> So, wow. so I did. And then, and then and that was the first time people liked it. And they, he kept inviting me back to, you know, to sit in with them and sing. And, and at the end of that, you know, by that point I was at Sejep, um, my first year of Sejep Dawson college, which is like, for those of you that don't know, Sejep is like a junior college basically in Canada and in, in Quebec specifically. And I was trying to do pre-med and pure and applied sciences and, thought I was going to try and be a doctor and it was just the theory was great and then I it got to dissecting fetal pigs and it became clear <laughs> it was not my calling <laughs> really you can't fast. do the pig you're you're pretty doomed in that field <laughs> yeah I do. never mind a cadaver like I couldn't even handle the pig yeah. so you know it was just you know <laughs> I had a, medical students have to dissect like animals and Anyway, never mind. We'll talk about it later. We'll talk about it later. <laughs> so I, tried to, I, I just like worms there. She's, I know it's okay. Ida's eavesdropping. Um, anyway, the it was you know he took me aside at some point and said, "You know that you're a musician, right? You're clearly a musician." <laughs> and then I moved. You know that was when. I, I kind of, I think I didn't even finish my first year of college. It was really tough for me. You know, I was doing terrible telemarketing jobs and mm-hmm. it was, you know, it was um, just very depressing, basically. That was, you know, that was sort of, I, at that point I was 17 and I knew med med school wasn't in my future and I could, was barely sort of, at that point I'd moved in with these three friends from my that I had met in high school 
um, wonderful women that I that I'm still in touch with to this day, um, who were some of the the first people that I ever disclosed sort of what had been happening to me too, and who were kind of my first network of loving support and sort of chosen family. You know, I was struggling sort of to pay rent and doing this ter- working night shifts at this terrible telemarketing job, and who were kind of the only people that would hire me, you know, at that time. And so I just, this, my, my uncle actually came to town with his girlfriend at the time, Barb, who became his wife later. And they have become, you know, they are sort of probably the only reason that, that I was able to envision like a loving partnership that was non-abusive was meeting, meeting them and living with them for a time and really getting to know that, that adults could treat each other in a loving fashion, you know, and not, not be abusive to one another. And uh, my, my uncle David, my mom's older brother and her second oldest brother and uh, my aunt Barb. So they're, yeah, I love them forever and ever. And they're, they came to town. My, actually my mother had sort of had an, an episode one day where she was off her medication and she decided to call my uncle and tell him what had been happening. And so he, was horrified. He didn't sort of realize that I had not been living there for two years because they weren't broadcasting that I had run away, wow. you know? Yeah. So it's a bit and, of a shock. Um, it was a shock to my uncle and he came, he came to Montreal and he just said, look, do you want to, we're going to do a trip across the country. Why don't you just come see the country? You've never seen it. We'll go camping in Ontario. You can meet Barb's family and 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 come to that they were living in vancouver at the time and doing this trip back across barb's family were are from toronto um jarvis is actually from toronto but anyway um they they it was this whole wild my first camping trip and a lot of firsts just first time time canoeing and first time you know all of this stuff and first time being around a couple that weren't abusive to each other you know it's an eye-opener like sort of like really like nervous at first like when is the why are they being so nice <laughs> when's the other shoe gonna drop no i didn't know oh, i didn't terrible. even know what, what what to do with that right but they they really you know they they really really changed my life so they brought you out to vancouver and and how they long to vancouver. how long until you started kind of getting into the music scene there Right away, away. because my Aunt Janet, who you knew, my Aunt Janet Russell, and was part of the South Hill candy shop kind of songwriter scene. And she is a beautiful singer and songwriter. And right when I got to town, she was recording an album with Richard Bell, actually. He was producing my Aunt Janet's record. And so it was like Richard Bell producing it. And it was all the usual suspects, you know, Colin Linden and Basil Donovan and, um, and Gary Craig on the drums. Were they recording in Toronto or in Vancouver? In Vancouver. Oh. Yeah. Or maybe, although some of them might have recorded remotely. I can't remember. And no, I think they were all in Vancouver because I met a bunch of them Okay, in Vancouver. Oh. So um, they were there and I was, you know, 18 or that was 17, 18. And yeah, so the, um, the South Hill was. I me to sing harmonies on this record. So I was in the studio. My first studio experience was with Richard Bell producing. Not so bad. Singing harmonies on my Aunt Janet's record. Cool. And then I met, um, oh, Michael, I'm forgetting his name, Luthier, Michael. Michael Dunn. Um, he had the Hot oh, of Mars Band. Yeah, Michael Dunn. Michael Dunn. Thank you. I'm so sorry. Sorry for forgetting his last name. Michael Dunn um, hired me to trans to write and 
translate uh, some lyrics for Django Reinhardt's into, into so that they could get into the Festival du Bois, which is the only French language folk festival in BC, I think. It's the, in Poco, in Port Coquitlam. Yeah. It's the Festival du Bois. And so he hired me to like sing in French so they could get into this festival yeah and you know i've never been paid to sing before it was like shocking really and then i got hired very soon after that by the ndp to sing the canadian the the national democrat new democratic party to sing um the 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 canadian anthem because they wanted someone bilingual who could sing it in english and french oh nice so they paid me 350 dollars to sing to sing it at their convention wow. and i was like like my, I couldn't couldn't believe it. Yeah. You know, you're paying me three hundred fifty dollars to sing for four minutes. This is incredible. <laughs> and then, and and you also so, you also hooked up with Tim Redman, right? Because you you sang in the in. Were you in fear of drinking? Was that I was in fear of drinking for a while. That was so. I love that story surreal. about how like I don't really know what they did, but I guess they were doing a lot of covers. <laughs> but but you like played with him for a couple of years and you're like, man, that guy's an amazing songwriter, but he was, he was just playing Beatles covers, but you didn't realize. And I didn't know, <laughs> I didn't know their Beatles covers because I grew up under a rock. I mean, that was the other thing about my. And that Hey Jude is a pretty good song. I was like, these are amazing. You got to write more songs like that. And he was horrified when he realized that I thought he had written them. He was just like, he you don't know the beat. Okay. He, he began my, my pop culture education, <laughs> but modern music education. Yeah. You know, he was like, okay, here, listen to this. Here's Abbey Road. Here's <laughs> go read this. So up, up to that point, like, had you not heard... Uh, blues and soul and and early rock and roll very and all little that stuff. Wow, very little. I had heard so. Actually, there was a there was a young man who was sort of courting me, um, and when I was around sixteen, who made he was a bass player, and he made me a tape with Sandy Denny and Fairport Convention on mm. one side, yeah. and on the other side it had um, a recording from the library of Congress called sweet petunias. And this is, you know, like when people made you tapes to be like, I like you. Yeah. <laughs> and I was blown away by Sandy Denny and by all of these. So the sweet petunias was actually a compilation of, of early blues women. Okay. What would have been called race records yeah. back in the battle. Like days. Memphis mini and that kind of thing. Even it's yes, Bessie and Smith. and some even for like a band called the Bessie Smith, the Bandana Girls. There was only one white artist on there, and it was Mae West because she apparently specifically made race records as a protest against the segregation. Really? So she was just the coolest woman ever. When you when you dug into her story, she was so far. That's crazy. She was pro, she was like, you know, was was all about civil rights for everybody, black folks indigenous folks, LGBTQIA plus, like, like she was just, she's incredible. When you mm. really start to read about the West and how, what a complete iconoclast, progressive, brilliant, amazing mind she was. And she also single-handedly saved Hollywood basically after the 1929 crash, she funded MGM studios to start, oh. start back up again. May West. By her, Cause she was just brilliant. She was incredible. Yeah, she was she was just on so many levels. But um, anyway, so she 
she had a song on there called My Man Friday that I'll never forget. Friday's apple Friday, because the guy I see on Friday sets me for the rest of the week. My Man Friday. Really raunchy, really real, like just women singing about their their hard knock lives, mm-hmm. you know, and it was mind blowing to me because I had been raised by this white supremacist, um, you know, expat American man who also was um, elitist in terms of, you know, what we were allowed to listen to right. anything. He was very much a classicist. Anything basically after the romantic period was just not on as far as he was concerned, like anything after, um, you know, 1820s, except for his three very strange exceptions, Elvis, Boney M and the Kingston trio. So I had heard, (laughs) I had heard them. Okay. (laughs) But but like to give you a, to put it in, like I got, um, you know, physically assaulted by my adoptive father for listening to a Lorena McKennett, tape that my aunt Janet sent me, oh my you know, God. that was like, that was like that way was, too out there. For him. Was, yeah. At what point did you hear people singing that, I, I guess with that tape, but like, were there other, was there a moment where you, where you remember hearing like Nina Simone for the first time or, um, you know, Etta James or like any of those sort of um, people that you wouldn't have been allowed to listen to? It was at my aunt, my uncle David and aunt Barb's house. They had an amazing they have a, a fabulous vinyl collection and they also had a huge CD collection at that time. And they had all of the, all of the stacks record, all of the verbs records, all of the, you know, I just went deep and listened to, that's when I heard Nina Simone. That's when I heard Taj Mahal mm. for the first time. I remember that was one of the first, the first record I played when I got to their place in Vancouver, you know, they let me um, stay for free with them for a little while and then rent a room in their house when I got a job and they they were so good to me like they taught me how how to be a grown-up in a in a healthy way you know they they taught me how to cook you know they taught me how to they hipped you to Taj Mahal and say no more Yes, you know, and I'll never forget. I obsessively, I listened to Giant Step, Old Folks at Home over and over and over and over again. And I listened to, there was like a, I think it was a verb, like a best of Nina Simone. I just listened to it over and over again. You know, I would, I listened to the whole, um, the, the whole hot club, uh, the uh, uh, hot club de France, you know, all of the Django Reinhardt and Stefan Grappelli. Mm -hmm. One of the things I regret more than anything is that in 1999 when i you know like soon after i got to vancouver stefan grappelli played in vancouver and i was so broke i think i can't remember if it was the vogue or where he played but i was so broke i couldn't go and he died shortly after that and i will never stop i should have just <laughs> i should have just brazened it out and been like please let me in i will usher i'll do whatever you been, i'll clean garbage that would have been 12 let bucks well spent <laughs> oh man it was just can you just run me through some of your recording experiences because i like talking about that stuff and and you've had you yeah. know through birds of chicago and i know po girl made you know a bunch of records over the years um we but uh, yeah. with Birds of Chicago, that's a, a bit more recent. And, um, you know, you guys made a record with Joe Henry and you made a record with Luther. And maybe you could just 
compare those a little bit with with the the new record and and just tell me a, you know a little bit some of the highlights of various recording sessions you've had well i mean let's talk about joe henry because that guy knows what he's doing age the sage of our lives you know the i he is he is our brother for life we love him so much and and working with Joe and Ryan Freeland, who engineered that the the record we made <clears throat> together. Joe produced um, Real Midnight, which was a Birds of Chicago record that came out in 2016. How did that happen in the first place? Like, did you did you meet him uh, on the road somewhere? Or? So it was because of Rhiannon. Oh, Rhiannon okay. Giddens connected us. Yeah. We he was our dream producer. You know, we were, we were like, oh, if we could work with anyone, it would be. Joe Henry for this body of work, especially the songs on Real Midnight, it just felt like that is a, he's our dream producer. And we thought, what a long shot. And we emailed him actually. And he was very gracious and wrote back and was like, I'm very busy right now, but thanks for reaching out. Very gracious. But at, at around that time, um, Rhiannon just, you know, we, we've been friends since about 2006 when we met at the Vancouver Folk Music Fest when I was there with uh, Poe Girl and Rhiannon was there with the Carolina Chocolate Drops. I have a good picture of all of us on stage together at that festival. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Because you're with this was like the Sojourners yeah. and Indeedy on a Flulu yeah. and Rhiannon and, and me and all of our, Yeah, that was so much fun. I'll never forget that. That was really, that was like the African-American <laughs> set. Do you remember that? Like, yeah, we were all like, wait a minute. It's all the black people at the festival. <laughs> that sort of happens every festival, doesn't it? <laughs> no. There's always one time. Let's just here, <laughs> put y'all together. Uh, but I, I am grateful for that. It was a beautiful bonding experience. And we stayed, you know, we stayed in those same pods. Gage um, Towers. Yeah, the towers. So that's how we really bonded with Rhiannon. Because right. Ann and I were in, this, in that one of those, you know, these little student dorm pods with the one bathroom and the little prison cells. It's funny that kind of that, that awful, like weird uh, accommodation situation at the Vancouver Folk, has, Folk Fest has actually led to like, a lot of things springing forth from your life I and career. Know. That's crazy. I know. It's wild. It's like, that's been like, well, this is where I met some of my closest yeah. people. Um, yeah, it's just, I'm very grateful, very grateful to the Vancouver Folk Fest. It started me down the path, you know, the, root, the roots music path. Um, but yeah, we, so we, we had you know, stayed friends. We'd worked together on, on a couple of different shows over the years. And um, we opened for her and the chocolate drops at different points. And, you know, she just asked me like, who, you know, what's up with birds? Are you going to use a producer? And we said, Oh, well, you know, Joe Henry is our dream, but that's a, such a long shot and he's super busy. And, and she said, well, actually I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be having breakfast with him in a couple of days. I'm, I'll bring it up. And sure enough, she just, I guess, said to him, you got to listen to what they sent you. So she'd made a record with him already from, with the... Yes, they drops. won a Grammy together. Right. They, he, he produced the, um, the Carolina Chocolate Drops record, uh, Genuine Negro Jig, that won the last, I think it was the last, like, traditional folk Grammy, because um, they, they eliminated that category after that. I think it was in 20, I want to say 2011. And so, yeah, they, and they're, they've become very dear friends as well. And so she just said to Joe, have a listen. I think you're going to dig it. And he did. And he called us back and said, you know, 
let, let's do this. And so then we did a Kickstarter because we were like, how we can't afford Joe. So then we did a Kickstarter campaign yeah. and we made twice as much as we thought we would. And we were able to then, you know, fund the whole record ourselves, pay Joe, pay Ryan. And, and you guys and were the last ones to record in the, in the famed Garfield house situation, which was Joe's, Garfield house. Joe's studio for a, a decade, basically. Oh, it was his studio for a decade. You know, he really, he talks about it as like, that was his, a master's class that, that he was deeply engaged in some of the most beautiful records, you know, of, of the last 15 years, in my opinion, you know, were made there and to get to be a part of that legacy and lineage. And it was also heartbreaking though, because when we got there, the, the for sale sign had just gone up. And by the time we were done recording the record, there was a buyer and that was it. They were leaving home where they'd raise their kids. And it was really, it was really bittersweet. It was really emotional. Mm -hmm. You know, I remember coming in and Mel just sobbing at the table. And I remember Ida like running up to hug her little baby. Cause I, you know, this was, we were recording that record in 2015. So I was like two, you know, super verbal and loved just absolutely adored Joe's wife, Mel and adored Joe and adored Jay Belarus and Ryan Freeland. And so she was like running in and out of these recordings. And it was just, you know, Susie, Chris's wife came with us to, to, be our tour manager and, and Ida Wrangler. And it was just magical. I mean, and again, that's where we learned, actually, that is where we learned how to make a record in four days. Right. It was, that was the Joe and Joe Henry and Ryan Freeland opening our eyes to, and also the diminishing, you know, we used to, I really kept, before Joe, we would do the whole diminishing returns of where you're trying to maximize your, your, studio time and for the money that you're spending and you end up recording late into the night when it's just diminishing returns yeah you end up scrapping everything that you did past eight o'clock basically or that's been my experience and you know it's just diminishing and joe and ryan jay bellarose patrick warren that was you know they it was this collaboration between them and then our sort of inner family drew Lindsay. um Nick Chambers came. Um, Joe Falhaber was playing guitar with us back then. That was before we we started playing with you, Steve. And uh, and it was just this. And Chris Merrill, of course, on the bass. Yeah. And our friend Michelle McGrath came and sang oh, yeah. and and played guitar. Who is just you know our heart's sister. And it was this magical experience. And we didn't. We hadn't met Jay beforehand. We hadn't met Patrick beforehand. I'd imagine that that must have been somewhat intimidating walking into that situation. And they were very welcoming, I guess. Yeah. And with these iconic, you know, legendary musicians, it was very intimidating, you know, but they were, they were not, as soon as we got there, it was like, they're just absolute. Yeah. Just kinship and, um, and just, you know, stepped into the, the slipstream together and it was magical and we all loved each other. And it was, I mean, Joe is a genius at casting, room. you know, he really is. Is there a song from that record that like really personifies that experience for you? I feel like um, Real Midnight is a really special song to me and it's the title yeah. track. So it's the obvious thing to that. say, but that was one of the first ones we recorded and it was everybody just coalesced. And that was one of those magical 
three takes, yeah. second take. Yeah. That was it. And those very much, you know, he doesn't want, he, his, his only instructions to us before going into it were do not over rehearse these songs. Don't do it. We're going to let them, we're going to let them form. We're going to have this conversation in real time and it's going to be, feel alive when we capture this. And that was like quite terrifying for us going in where we like, no, we always. You're used to being super organized and planned out and yeah, yeah. Uh, on every little bit and like, oh, we were all trepidatious. And as soon as we got in the room, it was like, it was that, it was the magic communion that I'm hooked on, you know, that just happened. And of course, Ryan is just a genius at miking everything and getting where he's basically mixing as he's recording, you know, it's, and so when you hear it back, I never, I had never heard us sound that good either, you know? So yeah. then you just trust. It was like, and he's so, you know, he knows what he's doing. He's like, here, yeah. just listen to this. You know, and you're like, oh, okay, we're good. Like we, <laughs> we're making a record. It's right. It's all there. You know, it's all happening. And it was my first time hearing my voice really well produced. You know, I had never, and I've actually had some, some kind of um, funny, I'm not going to name names, but one of the early, folks that we worked with with Pogro was like, well, your voice is just weird. You know, it just has weird overtones and it just doesn't sound that good on recording. <laughs> oh my God. Like, okay. Thanks uh, person, whoever you are. Thanks buddy. Yeah. <laughs> like, just some outrageous stuff that some people say to young women. Um, but I don't know if they would say those same things to young men. I don't know. Maybe they do. I don't know. I only know my lived experience. So did that philosophy of of, you know, in the moment really carry over to the new recording as well? Like that Very was much. yeah, yeah. Very much. Basically since Joe, since since working with Joe and Ryan, we we it it just it resonates with how we do our best work as well, you know, and, and not to say that I wouldn't do, you know, I, I would be certainly if I'm working with a producer that works in a different way, I would, you know, I would go with that flow. But when it's my druthers, that's like, yeah. I just love it. I love the nothing beats that feeling of communion. But of course you have to have, you have to have trust in, in the musicians that they are of, that, that they are able to do that. Not everybody um, can, can deliver in the moment in the studio. It, some people have studio anxiety, yep. you know, some people have performance anxiety. Some people just aren't that used to playing live or singing without auto tune or something, right. you know, so that, and I'm not in any way casting aspersions, right. Yeah. About that. It's just, yeah, it's different. I've been really spoiled with playing with, you know, with you and with like people that can just, lay it down on a dime. We're, we're conversing in real time and there's not these blocks, right? There's not the like insecurity blocks. It's not about anything else. It's just about letting a song live and breathe and, and having a conversation. I'd imagine that Dan Nobler has a very similar uh, philosophy to recording. I don't know if he always works that way, but it seems like he probably had a similar approach, right? With you on the new record. He does. And, and he and Joe are dear friends as well. And we're, we're writing each other back and forth and he's a wonderful, I, I just think he's a wonderful, wonderful producer. He, he definitely does um, more. He added so many layers of beautiful things himself after, mm -hmm. you know, that, and I just trusted his ears. And so Dan is, is will definitely sculpt a bit more. Like he will, he gets, he, he loves, gets down like, in the mud a little. He gets down in the mud a little bit and he, but he likes to have, that's like, that's the, those are the, those are the 
the layers of, of I, I won't say gilding, that's not right, because it's always very tasteful and very in keeping with the song. But he will layer that stuff after. He wants the bones. He's very similar to Joe, I think, in that way. of He wants the bones of the song to feel alive and living and breathing. And that happens, yeah. you know, when you don't beat it to death. I mean, that was an interesting thing. Uh, my, my first sort of serious recordings uh, were with Poe Girl. And, um, and that was a very different process because there were, you know, some of the musicians in the early days of that band had some anxiety around the studio, you know? And so there was a lot of playing a song a hundred times, 20 times, you know, and then, and a lot of um, editing and stuff. Yeah. You know, one of, one of the singers in that band was just really insecure about her singing. And so she would do a lot of comping of the vocals together. And I think that's where I really realized that wasn't my thing. Yeah. You know, that I, I it's important to see that to know how you don't want to work too. Yeah. Yeah. And that's great. You know, and for someone else, that's perfect for their, you know, what they need to do, what to feel good and feel, um, you know, feel like, feel like they're coming across in the way that they would best prefer. And, and, and I have respect for that, but I also had to recognize that is not my method. You know, that's not where I feel happy. It made me feel like freak I was, out. You know, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. I kind of would, I would sort of freak where it's like this, where the song where I wouldn't, I'd lose the thread, yeah. you know, totally. of the, the emotion of the song. And, and maybe just because I'm an overly emotional person, where I'm like, I just want to feel it. You know, I want to feel it when I sing it and I want to be able to, to hear the feeling. I want to be able to hear you know, the camaraderie between the musicians. I want to be able to hear like the smile on someone's voice if they're feeling that or the tears in someone's voice. I, wanna, I love that stuff, right? I love that stuff. So I definitely um, err, uh, you know, to the side of I'll take a few, I'll take a few uh, warts and blemishes right. if the feeling there, you know, and, and Joe is very much in that camp and Dan, you know, Dan is very much in that camp too. Like that. Yeah. Those are the bones. That's, we got it. We got the feeling there. And then he can, you know, he can layer. And, and again, Ryan and Joe have worked together in such beautiful concert. Ryan can, we, we called it like throwing ninja stars, like, Oh, there's a bit we want, you know, it's gone. <laughs> like amazing quick edits and like done. You're we're good. Yeah. Cause they're not precious. I mean, that's the other thing, you know, they're not precious about, it has to be all analog or it has to be, we did record to tape ultimately, but they also did some digital, you know, just cleaning up of things and like, why not use that technology if it's there? Totally. Now that the record's out, is there going to be touring? Like, have have you, have you talked about that? Is that (laughs) happening? Do you like, where, where's that at for you? Cause I know some bands are starting to book stuff now. Yeah. We're, you know, we are, we are cautiously hopeful that there will be some outdoor, some limited distanced outdoor stuff okay. this summer. Cool. Um, and, and that, again, a lot of that will depend on this next, you know, we're just in this first uh, or this first phase of all the adults being eligible now yeah. that we're past May 1st. And, you know, so we'll see, like, I'm hopeful. I am hopeful that there will at least be able to be a few distanced gatherings, but um, though, though I'm sure there will be, some announcements about that soon. Well, um, thank you for talking to me today. It's lovely. The record's oh awesome. Gosh, and everyone should exciting. rush out and get themselves a copy in some form. I assume it's out in vinyl or coming out in vi- on vinyl? 
Yes, yes, vinyl and CD if that's your thing. And um, and yeah, it's there. It's awesome. out there. And I think the vinyl looks really pretty. I bet. <laughs> Is it a double vinyl. record? It must be a double vinyl. No. Okay. No. You know what? Here's here's the here's the deal. Did you have to chop some songs? We we had to chop one song for the vinyl. Okay. But it, it so the, we had to chop Little Rebirth for the vinyl. It's on the CD and it's of course on the um, digital realm and it's on the download card that comes with the vinyl. Okay. So if you do get the vinyl, know that there is one song that was cut, so you have to listen to that one digitally. And we did that just because we wanted to get that beautiful, pristine 180 gram, like, you know, not, not distorted. And it was a really tough call. Yeah. It's tough to cut one of of your children. It was a tough call to make. And, you know, in the future we may, because this is, because I'm a debut solo artist (laughs) uh, that, you know, my wonderful team at fantasy records very understandably did not want to be, um, you know, having the first record be at a price point that might be really Daunting. prohibitive for people. Right. And so once you get into double vinyl, you just have to charge a lot more. Yeah. And we did it. And I also, you know what? I have a weird thing about it. I, I don't know if it's weird, but I don't love the experience of having to switch over the record, you know, twice or sometimes three times when it's, I, there's something that I love that is so deeply ingrained in me about a side A and a side B, you know, there's just something about that to me. I love it. You know, I love, but it was heartbreaking. It was, I was like, why do I write such long songs? (laughs) Shorter songs where all 11 could have fit on the vinyl, but. Thank you for sharing your day with me. And thanks for the sharing the music with everyone in the planet. And um, it's my pleasure. uh, I'm sure I will Uh, be talking to you and seeing you soon. All right. See you at the dog park. All right. Thanks, Allie. (laughs) Okay. Thanks, Steve. Lots of love. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. That was my conversation with Allison Russell. Hope you enjoyed it. Please keep up to date with what she's up to at alisonrussellmusic.com. And we shall see you next month for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. See you then. Thanks for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. Don't forget to follow us on social media and please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify Podcasts. And you can find us online at makersandshakerspodcast.com. As always, thanks to Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver for help with research. And we'll see you next month for another chilling episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. See you then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.